Welcome to One Pigs Fly, a podcast that's uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history dating back from the 1800s to today. We uncover the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply prost to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Allie Martin. And I'm your other co-host, Patrick Bailey. And today we are talking to Irina Filipova. She is a founder and COO of Electrata. So in a nutshell, Electrata is trying to accelerate electric mobility for all of us here in Cincinnati. And they are building and they are the infrastructure of charging stations for electric cars. Which is huge because electric cars are taking off. I'm not sure, Ali, if you've seen on the news lately. But <laughs> if you ever turn on the television, 110 <laughs> percent, it is the future for us. In they're this always there. And, you know, it's surprising that, you know, we as a city could have been the motor city. We could have been the future. <laughs> we could have been Detroit. <laughs> right. It sounds like we could have been a lot of things. <laughs> right. Because back in the day, we were producing probably more horse-drawn carriages than anyone. Um, at that time, we had about 5,000 workmen in carriage shops across the city, and it generated about $9.5 in gross output annually. And that's about $265 million in today's dollars, which is wow. A lot of money. And like wow, wow, wow. there were car companies even called like Sin O, Arm Letter, Buggy Car, Crane and Breed. And they all kind of went kaput when Henry Ford decided to make Detroit the hub. We also had a harder time pivoting just from the carriage to mm-hmm. automotive anyway and really expanding to buses and other types of vehicles unfortunately, and we always seem to have a very interesting history in terms of our transportation here in Cincinnati, from (laughs) cars (laughs) to inclines to streetcars to abandoned subway tunnels. So this this will be exciting to talk to Irina about what she's trying to do with Electrata and growing our city and our electric vehicle um, mobility. Hopefully we could become, you know, the Midwest hub for electric vehicles. Somebody has to be. And, you know, no one's really taken lead on that yet. So hopefully Cincinnati can maybe be that hub. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this is growing and how she's implementing it into our city. So with that said, let's bring her in. So thank you so much, Irina, for doing this. I first heard about you through up in Northeast Ohio, in Warren, they have an energy incubator, Bright. And I came across your profile and I'm like, oh, this startup is in our backyard. (laughs) So, Arena, if you just want to go ahead and tell us, you know, about Electrata, just give us an introduction. Sure. Happy to and very happy to have been introduced through Bright. They've been great partners so far and just a wonderful group of people. We love connecting with them and partnering with them. So Electrata is a local business. We're a startup. We've been in operations for just over a year since April of last year, started the business in the midst of the pandemic, go figure. And we own and operate electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Uh, We feel that our region is very underserved when it comes to Mm -hmm. EV charging. While a lot of the attention is on the coasts, obviously those zero emission vehicle states, a lot of the Midwestern states get left behind. And we wanted to launch Electrata to address some of those infrastructure needs early on. So is there a big need 
for these stations throughout Cincinnati in the, in the Midwest? There is certainly a very big need. But what is also important to keep in mind is that every major automaker has made a very vocal, loud commitment to electrifying mm -hmm. their conveyor belts. We will see somewhat close to 100 new models of electric vehicles coming off those conveyor belts in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. So no longer are you talking about just the smaller percentage of the population, Tesla driving, kind of socioeconomic group. You're talking about a wide variety of price points, wide variety of models to make electrification of transportation affordable and accessible to everyone. But yeah. it's obvious that you would not consider switching to electric if you don't have a way to charge your car. The setup, yeah, yeah. The setup. So the infrastructure really needs to be there before that mm -hmm. decision to transfer to electric is made. So paint a picture for us. Now you've been in Cincinnati for what you said, about a year or so at this point. Yes. Paint a picture for us as to how Electrata had started to roll out in the city. Where are the charging stations? And give us give us that lowdown. Then also, yeah. could you just give us the inception, right? Like, yes. you know, there are, you know, other companies trying to do electrical, EV, electric vehicle, mm -hmm. you know, charging stations. How do you think that you guys can, can compete? Sure. No, great. Both great questions. And that probably will start with the second one, if you don't mind. Yeah. Because the DNA of Electrada was to become the owner and operator of this EV charging infrastructure. And while there have been a lot of early projects to roll out EV charging, a lot of those good intentions, unfortunately, ended up in unintended consequences to mm. where a municipality or a school would receive a government grant to install their charging infrastructure. They'd probably just Google manufacturers of that infrastructure, get, the cheapest, get, the, yes, get the cheapest equipment that they could, install it, and then forget about it. Oftentimes, they wouldn't network the equipment, and lo and behold, a couple of years later, that equipment yeah. is no longer functioning. So they're calling the manufacturers, mm. they're trying to figure out how to maintain it, how to address the functionality issue. So the reliability of that uh, EV charging infrastructure became a real pain point for EV drivers. Why? Because that infrastructure wasn't thought through. The analytics at the site didn't take place before installation. The demand wasn't really evaluated because it was still very early, right? And it wasn't thought through all the way as any infrastructure play would be thought through. Most infrastructure investments are very long-term. Mm -hmm. It's not just a technology investment. It's not a washing machine. Oftentimes mm -hmm. we hear from residential and real estate owners, it's like a washing machine, it's just another <laughs> But actually it is not. It is not. It's much more sophisticated and it requires specific expertise in maintaining it. So our DNA as a company was to maintain that infrastructure and be really a turnkey provider all the way mm. from site evaluation, demand evaluation. What's the right type of infrastructure for this type of a site? A retail, mixed-use retail site is not necessarily the same as a residential site, not necessarily the same as a workplace, and certainly not the same as fleet, right? So mm -hmm. all of them have different use cases, different applications. So understanding that use case and then designing the deployment of EV charging for that use case is what we specialize in. Effectively, think of us as an investor in EV charging infrastructure. We also like to say that we're the single neck to choke. We are the partner to our site hosts. So we are responsible for the uptime of that infrastructure. If it's not working, we're the ones who take on 
the responsibility for it as the owner. So it's in our best interest to ensure high uptime in excess of 96% to ensure that those EV drivers are happy and that they mm-hmm. continue to use the infrastructure. This might be a stupid question. So are you owning the EV charging stations themselves and then you're like renting them out? We don't rent them out. We continue to own them throughout the term of our agreement with a site host. So you have to collaborate with, what, let's say you, uh, you're eyeing a specific parking lot, then you need to figure out who owns that parking lot and find a, and figure out an agreement. Exactly right, okay. Ali. Bravo. Okay. Yes. We are making strides. <laughs> People listening are probably like, oh my gosh, no. keep up. <laughs> no, no, that's, that is a very, very fair question because it's a new model in the market. And so people are like, what? Yeah. It's a lease? It's a license? What is it? And effectively, it's just a way for us to, yes, through a lease or a license structure to operate on the property so that, that we continue to be that turnkey provider. And we even upgrade that infrastructure over the years if it becomes obsolete, because this is yeah. obviously a very fast-moving industry, to where it's always meeting the demands of those EV drivers for that use case. So then, and we'll get back to that paint paint the picture question. So I'm now that we're kind of talking about this direct use, let's say in a parking lot. So if I'm a if I have an electric vehicle and I want to come and park, is it very much like if I were to use a meter? It's very similar to if you wanted to use a meter. In the meter situation, you pay for time. In a recharging situation, you could pay for time in some jurisdictions that require it. But we prefer to charge per kilowatt hour because that's the actual mm. energy that your vehicle is consuming. Yeah, it makes sense. What is the average, I guess, bill for one of these electric vehicles? It depends entirely on the type of a vehicle and the type of a charger. But for, say, a level two charger, which is the majority of chargers you would see right now that we've installed in Cincinnati, you probably get about 25 miles of range over a course of one hour, charging it for about one hour. And you would pay between 2 and $3. Again, that depends. And typically, the, the overall cost of filling your EV is lower than filling your car tank with gas, even in these low gasoline prices that we're, we're well, minus unless today. you live in the South right now, but we won't go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't drive an electric car, so I've never had to charge my car before. Is this a situation like what Apple does where they change the dongle every year? Like are all the charging outlets the same for every car? Great question. So as you know, Tesla was a very first mover in this market. And the way that Tesla has thought about charging is that it's really an extension of a customer offering so Mm. that the Tesla driver Mm. will have a Tesla supercharger to go to and charge their vehicle. So they made this network of charging stations exclusive to Tesla drivers, which wasn't a huge problem because the majority of the market still was Tesla. Tesla, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But that is changing rapidly and Mm -hmm. it's no longer viable to have that closed network only available to Tesla. So the market overall, the market standard, operating standard, is moving to a universal standard, Mm. which is called the J1772 and level two in the United States. Quiz us that later, we won't remember. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. The J72 something, something, something. (laughs) (laughs) So all the EVs basically on the market today could charge at J1772, including Tesla because Teslas do come with an adapter. Mm. Mm. Okay, so interesting. A very clever solution for your dongle adapter. 
I always lose my adapter for my laptop. I guess I would lose my adapter for if I owned a Tesla. So that just doesn't sound like a good I don't think you will. I think it, it's quite sizable. It's not, <laughs> it's not so small. <laughs> I would hope that the car, does, that they would design a place in the car to hold that. But I digress. Continue. I think it's in your glove <laughs> compartment. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There but, we go. But it's a, the standards is a is a great question, Ali, because mm-hmm. it's a very early market segment. We're still early in this industry, right? And if you think back, yeah, even yeah. to your to your smartphones, right? That industry standard was evolving, and you had num- a number of plugs um, yeah. over time. Until now, we kind of have two, which is still probably one too many, <laughs> but, but at least we're kind of there in terms of market standard. And this applies to other aspects of EV charging as well, just kind of the manner in which you charge your vehicle. For example, with a Tesla, you can plug and charge to where that handshake between the charger and the, and the car mm-hmm. happens at that point where you plug it in and you don't need to actually even take out your app select the, the session, everything happens oh, behind the scenes because that that recognition happens at the handshake moment. This is not yet the case for all the other manufacturers. So we're waiting for this plug and charge standard to become the industry standard for both the manufacturers of vehicles and of charging stations. So who's going to be setting the standards? I mean, essentially the standard mm-hmm. government set the standards for gas stations at one point in time, uh, yes. very much on a state by state basis like if you go to new jersey like you can't pump your own gas but you know who is going to be setting these standards across the industry well but there are there are certain standards in terms of technical compatibility in terms of safety those are federal Mm -hmm. standards and even though states can charge depending on kind of their their specific rates or the way that in which they they manage that particular aspect of fueling it's really a way to move the industry forward versus let the industry kind of stay in those technology solution wars, right? And actually say, let's bring everybody to a higher standard. It's, it's akin to a UL certification, effectively. If you can think of, you know, UL certification as being a requirement for everyone. So with that said, I would love to then kind of go back to the, the, paint, the, the application portion yeah. of that here in this city. First of all, why in why Cincinnati? Does Columbus already have another company that's up there doing the same thing? Maybe Cleveland, I don't know, but why Cincinnati and what did that rollout look like? Very simple answer to that. So our founding team, our original founders are all based in Cincinnati. Our original base of supporters is in Cincinnati. So we kind of grew up and were incubated, if you will, in Cincinnati, uh, mm-hmm. which is why why here made all the sense in the world. Columbus, I will not hesitate to say, is a poster child for clean transportation because a while ago, Columbus Mm. was a recipient of a Department of Transportation Award and also a Paul Allen Foundation Award. And they were able to really step up their efforts in decarbonization of transportation, particularly fleet electrification, vehicle electrification, basically installing EV charging infrastructure in Columbus in that phase. Yeah. So they're they're a poster child, not just for the state of Ohio, they're a poster child for across for a lot of cities. Yeah. Across North America. Yeah. So they've done they've done some great things through Smart Columbus, which is a partnership, as you know, between public and private entities by working together and by basically sending setting very ambitious goals and objectives. I guess that makes me wonder now, are you focusing on you know, the residential market, the commercial market, or like the fleet market 
So this is, we'll come back to now the paint the picture, Ali. <laughs> yes. Uh, out of the gate, we focused on public access stations as a way of raising awareness, as a way of signaling to the market that we're here. These charging stations are here. So our very first deployment was at Finley Market. And it was actually a replacement of one of those early installed chargers that wasn't functioning anymore, wasn't properly selected for the site, wasn't maintained. Lo and behold, we came in and replaced it. We have also deployments at the Cincinnati Zoo, at the Art Museum, at the Golden Lamb, at a number of other sites and municipalities. The idea was to really make make our presence seen and felt. And in parallel, Mm -hmm. we've also developed more of the residential portfolio, working with large residential developers, because of course, Mm -hmm. EV drivers will continue to charge at home. However, 40% of Cincinnati area residents live in multi-unit dwellings, mm-hmm. which means that they don't have, they're not, it's not a single family home with a garage. They don't have the ability to charge their vehicle in their garage. So they have to rely on their building to provide them with that charging amenity. So what does it take then? Because here's a perfect example. I'm, I'm also in a multi-complex building. And yeah, cool. We have electric running through you know, our garage and whatnot, but who's to say, is that enough power? Is it safe? What do you look for if you were to install a unit like that in a multi-complex residential unit? So the first thing that that we would do, we would talk to the owner of the building, right? Mm -hmm. The owner of the building has to be willing and ready to install some EV charging infrastructure. And they maybe have heard some rumblings that there's some interest in this, or maybe there's one or two EV drivers. And sometimes they they see the cord coming out of the window <laughs> yeah. of somebody trying to charge their vehicle from their living room or something like that. Mm-hmm. So usually there's a precedent that makes them interest, interested in, in exploring this further. The first thing that we would do is we would conduct a site visit. We would evaluate really the electrical capacity at the site, the potential mm-hmm. placement of these chargers. And in parallel with that, we'd also do a survey of those residents in this building to actually ask them, well, how many EV drivers are there already? Because mm-hmm. you know, maybe people have the, the opportunity to charge at a workplace or even at public charging. So there are some of these pioneers who, who have fearlessly stepped into the space. How many people are considering converting to electric in the next year or two? Because there are folks who are saying, I want to drive an electric car, but I don't have a way of charging it. And so if there were only chargers in my building, I would switch tomorrow. We're realistic. We know that folks don't make those kinds of decisions on a dime. It usually takes about six months. So if you have a charger in your building, it would probably take you about six months to make that mm-hmm. transition if you're ready to make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, at least consider it. So those chargers really need to be in place for a couple of years before we would see more folks really switching to electric and adopting because then they would trust that the infrastructure is there. It's available to them. And that's how they would plug in. So we would then propose to install the infrastructure looking to that evolving demand, building into that demand, rather than here are the two chargers for the two EV drivers that are already in the building. So we build for that future. So, okay, you've done residential, you've done commercial fleet. 
what's happening in that mm-hmm. segment. I know um, I actually was just talking with a startup company yesterday that focused on, you know, totally just fleet, just Uber and Lyft. And then also you have now like the post office wanting to do, you know, the fleet vehicles. And then you have up here in Northeast Ohio, Lordstown Motors doing commercial fleet pickup trucks. So can you tell us a little bit more, uh, you know, on that side of things? Absolutely. No, happy to. If I were to characterize the fleet segment, I would say there are two words to characterize it. One is complexity and another one is overwhelm. The overwhelm of information and market signals to say, yes, this fleet electrification, vehicle electrification is coming. What are you doing about it? If you're a government entity or public entity, what's happening in, in Washington to incentivize you to, to transition to electric. Some folks are waiting for you know, federal dollars to basically come their way to enable that transition to happen, which in my opinion, isn't probably the best or mo- most efficient way of going about it because mm-hmm. we do have to start. So that's the overwhelm. And the complexity comes from the fact that while we think about fueling our gasoline vehicles as a commodity, And also we think about electricity as a commodity. Both are ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. both are available, transparently priced, kind of out there for us. And we've seen them for over 100 years. Electric vehicle charging is not a commodity. It's not Mm -hmm. because that it's not right now. Exactly. Because the market is still too young. We've talked about the reliability aspect. We've talked about the right sizing of the equipment for the needs uh, Mm -hmm. of that customer. And fleets are complex. Because most of the time, you don't have actually uniform fleets. You have different types of vehicles in your fleet that would have a slightly different timeline in terms of the conversion. Everything really depends on vehicle availability. So when we're saying 100 new EVs on the market, you know, how many of the new ones are we already seeing on the the roads today that Mm. we trust that this model is available? With folks like Lordstown and Workhorse and even Rivian, Obviously, lots of market focus on these new players, but even I would say with existing huge established OEMs, everyone is really in anticipation of these new models and that that anticipation is building. But I think as a fleet owner, it's tough for you to make that decision and to embrace those new models until you've actually seen them on the roads. So a lot of what we are working on now uh, with our fleet customers is really preparing them for that transition educating them on this transition, making sure that we're getting all the right stakeholders around the table to explore Mm -hmm. what their decarbonization goals are for their companies and for their organizations. How are they going about it? What proportion of those decarbonization goals pertain to fleet and transportation? How do they manage Mm -hmm. the fleet? Do they own it? Do they lease it? What are the various ways in which they want to decarbonize their fleets. And we kind of go from there because in many respects, folks still have very limited and very fractured information. And when we talk about implementation, Electrata kind of using its turnkey DNA (laughs) and its owner operator DNA saying, yes, it will be very complex. The implementation will be very complex. You have to consider the vehicles. You Mm -hmm. have to consider all the software and understanding of your fleet duty cycles and how these vehicles are actually running, right? So you have to do all your calculations in terms of savings on the total cost of your ownership, on your energy consumption, on maintenance, uh, and all of that actually is a very positive picture from the total cost of ownership perspective for EVs. And then you have to consider the actual implementation at the site. 
at those mm. speed depots, how many chargers, what capacity, that all depends on the duty cycles, what kind of an energy solution do you need, right, to ensure that you always have plentiful energy available to charge those vehicles. So it's no longer kind of the old workaround when in gasoline vehicles, folks will just put a barrel of gasoline <laughs> on their pump, yeah. right? Not the safest solution, in my opinion, but that was kind of their hedge, right, uh, on the supply side. You can't quite do that with EV charging, right? But you can start implementing a smart depot. We're talking about smart city, a smart depot type of a solution to where you've thought through that transition. So what we're doing right now is we're engaging with a lot of the fleet operators around the country in these types of conversations and trying to figure out where does a decision lie with, who is the actual stakeholder that will make a decision about fleet electrification. Usually there's multiple. And how does that basically then cascade through the organization to implementation, to making that decision, to make that first purchase or lease of EVs. So when you're looking throughout Cincinnati, what are some of, and you kind of just touched on this, but specifically, what are what are those traits that you're looking for to say, this would make a good place to install these units? Mm. You mean in the public access area? In the public access area, yeah. When it comes to public access, obviously there has to be traffic, there has to be visibility. But we're also focused on so-called level two charging for public use. So in the industry, there's a lot of talk about fast charging. Again, because people are comparing fueling a gasoline vehicle with EV charging. And they think that the two have to be the same. You have to rethink that. The only way in which they're the same, if you're driving down a highway, you're on a long interstate trip, and you need to stop, and you're only willing to stop for so long to charge up your vehicle. That is the time when you need that DC far ch- super fast charger. And that is not you. Well, that is not us. That is not us. No. And the reason for that is because we believe the majority of the need that is not addressed yet by either government initiatives or other market players is actually in those urban, suburban areas mm-hmm. where people live, work, and play, as we like to say. So the, in the public access areas, I guess our requirement would be that Folks stay at a destination, be it a retail establishment, a restaurant, a museum, a market, for at least 45 minutes to an hour to make it worth their while plugging in. So if you go Mm -hmm. to the grocery run, you just top up. And the way that an EV driver thinks about topping up is kind of like you and I think about charging a phone. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're topping up wherever you see a plug. (laughs) You know, you're Yeah, 100 right? <laughs> and that's how you basically go about your day. So an EV driver kind of thinks the same way about topping up, knowing that they're most likely to have that reliable residential charging at home. Mm-hmm. Or they're if based, they're lucky, yeah. yes, they're based, or if they're lucky at work, even though very few workplaces offer EV charging right now. I hope that answers your question. Alex. Yeah, no, it does. It does. It does. So that brings up actually a good point that there are a few challenges posed by electric vehicles. And I would love to get your thoughts on those. First being, you know, long distance driving. Um, and then the second being, if there was like a disaster case scenario, I mean, we had a big bad windstorm here in the early 2010s, 2008-ish in Cincinnati, and it wiped out electricity in some areas. Or if you were in Texas this year. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> in some areas, it, you know, it's a few weeks. So what... 
I guess the, in those two these scenarios, what do you have to say about uh, electric vehicles? Sure. And I would put that question or challenge on its head and say the challenge is not with electric vehicles. The challenge is with infrastructure. That infrastructure challenge isn't going away, mm-hmm. right? The transition to electric is here to stay. It's absolutely undeniable that all the major automakers have voted. And you know that the, there's been a lot of experimentation in this field mm-hmm. for a very long time in terms of biofuels and hydrogen. All kinds of technologies have been experimented with. And you know the market has voted, as it were, in favor of electrification. In terms of range anxiety, it's a very, very common concern and in some ways a myth. And the reason for that is because some of the earlier models and their batteries really weren't very competitive with the demand of day-to-day driving, right? Mm-hmm. The battery was very heavy, very expensive to really fit the, the driver's uh, needs. Majority of the EVs that will come available very, very shortly will fit all of your needs in terms of driving. And again, the infrastructure needs to be there for you not to feel that anxiety. So again, the question is what, not that the electric vehicle cannot go far enough, it's that there isn't charging <laughs> available to enable it to go. So if we didn't have gas stations, you'd feel the same way about gasoline, right? Mm-hmm. Conventional vehicles, or as they, they call them in the industry, ICE vehicles. Yeah, and I guess if you were to have a power outage, that's not on you. You're 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 that single unit. That's the greater system of of how we're we're all plugged in and we're wired. Which is why you know one of the biggest challenges today in Washington is the infrastructure bill, right? How mm. do we upgrade our infrastructure to where we become energy reliant, energy independent? what we produce and consume, those two things you know, coincide yeah. and we're prepared for all eventualities because with climate change, we will have more events like Texas happening in our lifetimes. So, and you've had quite an extensive career in energy, right? So if you were in charge and you can make a decision, what would you do? Well, I would say the first thing that I would do is stimulate the market. I think okay. the worst thing that, that can happen is for people to wait for the quote unquote government to make all the big decisions, Mm -hmm. right? Because that is by definition, first of all, impossible, but also very, very complex. What the government can do is the government can provide incentives for the market Mm -hmm. to build upon, right? And to create those solutions because we have entrepreneurs right here in Cincinnati, as you know, right? We have entrepreneurs all over the country who are solving these problems, including within OEMs. And by the way, most OEMs, when they say that we're going to, you know, put billions to this electrification, it's not just for the production of the vehicles, it's towards R&D. It's towards R&D to make those batteries more affordable and to go further. So how do you incentivize the industry and the market players? So the government has done something very cool, I think, uh, in the beginning by providing those incentives to EV drivers. Mm -hmm. That is a tax credit. If you buy an EV, you get a tax credit. It's limited at 200,000 vehicles per manufacturer. So Tesla has already tapped out its 200,000 vehicles. But all the new ones that are coming on on stream will presumably all benefit from this federal tax credit. It's a great way to signal to the market, we appreciate you transitioning to electric. Yeah, so how then are you convincing us as consumers to switch to electric? This is you as a consumer are getting that tax credit. We are getting that. Okay. Yes, you as a consumer... 
but it's a little bit confusing because the, the, the cap is on the company, on the models, mm-hmm. right? But the tax goes to the consumer. Mm, okay. Okay. That right. makes sense then. Yep. 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 In Ohio recently, there's been a lot of debate around EV registration fees, right? That are very mm-hmm. high at $200 per registration fee and feels punitive. And then folks are saying, well, yes, but EVs, you know, they're not pay- paying gasoline tax and therefore there needs to be a way to tax EVs to pay for the roads. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We don't want to be signaling to folks that it's more punitive to own an EV than an internal combustion engine vehicle. Yeah. Right? So yeah. let's make our policies smart and let's get out of the way of entrepreneurial companies and even innovation. innovation and big business to solve these problems for the market. Then where is the money? I guess just in that scenario, where is the tax money going to come for the roads and stuff then? Where should it come from, I guess, if you were, I guess, in charge? Because we have plenty of potholes in the city that we really could fix. <laughs> we do. We do. Absolutely. And so, yes, and there are kind of federal level issues here in terms of, you know, just the state of the roads, right? State mm-hmm. of the infrastructure across the country. Yeah. But you also have basically utilization based taxation, right? So make that charge transition to the utilization of electricity by that EV driver rather than mm. punish them right up front. What if you bought your EV, but you drive it very little? And never yeah, on the roads, right? That's possible. Yeah, and part of that too is it goes back to why you guys are doing what you're doing. You might drive it very little because it might not be as convenient as you thought it is if you don't have anywhere to charge up unless it's just at home. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. Exactly. So, but most EV drivers, you know, there's been a lot of research on this, lots of focus groups. Obviously, folks are very interested. It's a hot area, hot topic. And more and more existing EV drivers are no longer no longer quoting range anxiety as mm. their main pain point. They are quoting lack of charging infrastructure as their main uh, pain point. Oh, interesting. Reliable, interesting. I should say, charging infrastructure, because there's nothing worse than seeing that there's a charger on this plug share map and driving all the way to it to charge up and finding that it's not functioning. I want to kind of stay on the policy question. So I'm going to pose a similar question that I asked one of our earlier guests who worked in works in the solar power uh, industry. Mm. So go uh, check out Solar is Freedom episode if you have not already. Uh, it's a audience. good one. But wanted to ask you, you know, how do we as a society help those who currently work in the coal industries, the gas industries that essentially would be going out of business if we were to go all electric vehicles? That's a very, very valid question. And I think it's been adequately addressed by our policymakers, you know, currently in Washington. You cannot bypass the retraining aspect. You cannot bypass making concessions to folks who, yes, they have been in the same industry, but they have transferable skills. So Mm -hmm. by concessions, I mean giving them time to make this transition possible versus taking their jobs away and kind of leaving them to to fend for themselves, right? So this transition needs to be, quote unquote, managed. It's an enormous change Mm -hmm. from the energy perspective, from the transportation perspective. Those two are huge, right? They they Mm -hmm. rule our lives in many ways. When I used to work with a big energy company, we always said we'll provide light, heat, and mobility. Why heat mobility? What else do we need? (laughs) This is kind of the the, the, almost the extent of your infrastructure. Yeah. So that skill training and the transferability of skills and paying attention to how those industries need to really be 
if you will, rewired and the skills need to be rewired on a state by state, region by region basis. And I would say embrace it. We recently Mm -hmm. had a panel with Centrifuge about kind of the way in which our region stands apart in terms of kind of our our defining characteristics as an entrepreneurial region. And we need to embrace the fact that, yes, we're part of the Rust Belt. We're part of this industrial backbone of the United Mm. States. And it's not a detriment, Mm -hmm. quite the opposite. We're sitting on a gold mine here in terms of skills, right? In terms of knowledge that exists. So how do we transfer those skills and Mm -hmm. upskill those folks? Who be players in this new industry? Will Will Electrada be willing to help reskill yeah. those individuals and you know put them to work at Electrada once you guys get to that point? Oh, I'm sure we are very focused on. First of all, we work with a lot of um, younger people, uh, interns. We have a number of interns from UC this summer. We've had interns from Miami University, from Xavier. So we're already kind of taking in young talent in terms of skilling them up and educating them about this industry because a lot of mm. people have interest, but they don't quite know how it works. But in terms of kind of the basic skills, project management skills, construction skills, the electricians that we work with, all of those disciplines are very much part and parcel of what we do, mm. right? So naturally, we will embrace kind of folks who may be who may be looking to to switch. And I think for us as a growing company, the enthusiasm for what we do as a company mm-hmm. counts a lot more than years in the industry because years in the industry is meaningless, right? Nobody has <laughs> a decade yeah. in the EV industry. And people, when people say that sometimes on panels, I kind of chuckle. Like, really, you've been in the industry for 10 years? <laughs> it hasn't been around for that long. But yeah, there are a few. There are a few veterans for sure. But by and large, it's a very new industry. And what we need to really look at is what are those transferable skills? In the automotive industry, this is the perfect example, right? Yes, you're changing your conveyor belts. That's changing the way in which you may require kind of different types of talent and different types of skills, you know, Mm -hmm. in the factory. But think about the existing folks and how do you train and reskill them versus bringing in all new talent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maintenance, basically with EVs, maintenance is going away to a great extent, right? Because you no longer have to do oil changes. It's not the same volume of maintenance as it is an ICE vehicle. Mm-hmm. How are you going to retrain those folks to where they don't f- resist this change, mm-hmm. but rather embrace this change as a new opportunity for them? So besides training and education, and it kind of goes back to the note that you said that you had that meeting with Centrifuge and, and how the city you know, we need to embrace the Rust Belt environment that we have. What do you think we could do better as a city to help a company like Electrada do better? I think it's just important to get on the same page. It's important to get aligned, to form that private-public partnership, kind of Mm. big, big P's, capital P's, (laughs) right, all the way through, in a sense that we feel that, yes, we all share in those sustainability goals. We all know how those goals are going to be achieved, right? To where it's yeah. not kind of one entity over another entity. It's more we're in it together as a partnership. And these are our respective skills mm-hmm. and kind of unique qualifications to bring specific solutions to the market. How do we do this? 
When I think about Cincinnati, though, right, we're dealing with the whole tri-state. We're also dealing with Kentucky. We're dealing with Indiana. And we're heading up in the suburbs. So that alone is you're dealing with almost night and day mentalities. You have folks who might be up in Mason or Fairfield or wherever it is up in Middletown. And the chances of them coming downtown might not be as high. How are you? Are you considering expanding out into the suburbs like that or some point at some point in time, or will this still kind of be more urban? What does that look like? Cause you're dealing with two very different mindsets and talking about getting everybody on the same page. That's where that question kind of stemmed from. Yeah. As you know, a lot of the residential communities are out in the suburbs. Our model mm-hmm. again, favors kind of entities with a lot of parking, right? A lot of drive, yeah. not individual kind of personal homes in that particular model, but there, there are other market yeah. players who serve that model. And maybe there's a need out there and we don't know it. No, no, there are needs everywhere, right? There are needs yeah. everywhere to where, you know, where, wherever folks congregate, basically, mm-hmm. right? Mixed use, commercial, real estate, businesses, residential areas, workplaces. A lot of the mm-hmm. campuses, corporate campuses are not downtown, as you're well aware. Mm-hmm. So working on those corporate campuses and bringing charging to work versus relying kind of entirely on residential, that's mm-hmm. important. As far as kind of being in a tri-state area in different states, having different priorities or policies, or maybe even culture, mm-hmm. the only thing I would say to that, we should not be afraid to lead. Yeah, like you said, you can't wait for the government to say, go yeah. install those. <laughs> no, no. And when we have no intention to do that, yeah. when that happens, and by the way, Electrada was one of the awardees of the Ohio EPA award. Mm-hmm. We effectively are, we're co-investing with the EPA to bring 60 charging ports to our Southwest Ohio region. But that's, that's a great partnership. It's very important for, especially for public charging, but we should not be afraid to lead just because some entities may not fully understand the context. You want to be the mad dancer, mm. right? Yeah. You want to start somewhere. And then you'll see other people joining in. And a lot of folks are maybe a little bit more conservative in terms of how quickly they adjust to this, to this new reality. And what we're saying with our model is that we take the risk out of the equation for you. We capitalize mm-hmm. uh, the projects. We pay for all the operating costs. We even share a portion of revenues with our site host partner. So we incentivize them to partner mm-hmm. with us. And so that is why kind of we come in really is a market player that takes all that risk and cost out of the equation for them. So can you tell us about like the kind of traction you guys have gotten to date? You know, I just read an article and since the NO, you guys will be about at 300 chargers by the end of this year and then expected just to, you know, accelerate right after that. So can you detail uh, for us, you know, what kinds of or give to our listeners a little preview about where you guys are going to be headed, you know, outside of the tri-state area? Sure. No, happy to. So uh, we will continue to operate in public residential, multi-unit residential and uh, workplace segments in our region. So most of the 300 are still in our region. We're currently active in Cincinnati, Dayton and Columbus and soon to be Cleveland, hopefully, as well as Northern Kentucky and Indiana. So we're definitely focused on on the tri-state area quite a bit. In terms of the fleet opportunities, those, as you know, are typically they, they spread out a bit wider, right? Because those are national national footprints, larger entities, larger brands. So those really might take us anywhere we're looking currently at opportunities on both coasts, mid-Atlantic, kind of West Coast area, the South. So the listener, your listeners should be uh, expecting to see more of uh, Electrada 
uh, installations in the region, uh, kind of deeper penetration and really progressing, especially in the public segment this year. This is our banner year for public. So yeah. Uh, mm. more of that awareness building, right, for folks and mm. letting them know, signaling to them that this transition is coming. We like to ask this of every entrepreneur that comes on our show. You know, what is one thing that you've learned uh, that you wish to share with our listeners of starting your startup here in Cincinnati? Having really started the operations of this business in the midst of the pandemic, we've been lucky enough to not experience the downside of the pandemic. So I guess my advice doesn't go to all of the entrepreneurs across the board because I know there have been a lot of businesses struggling because of the pandemic. Because we work outside and we hang out in parking lots a lot, we haven't been <laughs> prevented from meeting people and doing our site surveys, right, and installing our infrastructure because most of it happens outdoors or in garages. But still, we certainly have experienced, like everyone else, the effects of the pandemic. And what I would say is whatever the challenges might be, focus and perseverance go a very long way. You'll have a lot of naysayers right off the bat. You'll meet a lot of people who would not believe in your idea or who might want to compete with you. That's okay. That's just part mm -hmm. of life and part, part of your discovery. Staying focused and being in integrity with your purpose mm -hmm. and with the model that you evolved for your business. That's the most important thing in all times, good and bad. Oh, I love that. I feel like we need to end on that note. <laughs> That's such a good high note. Well, and actually, I do want to say, what's that one final thing that you want people to know about Electrata? We're your friend, and we're here to take your pain away. I like that. That is, I mean, honestly, like, you've definitely convinced me otherwise about the, hey, there seems to be not as many pain points anymore with an electric vehicle. But I think it's a good point because I, like I said, I don't have an electric car, so it's not something I think about on the daily, but I will say I have noticed more and more of these charging stations pop up. So it's coming. You're just, it's, it's uh, preventative measures. Anticipation. You know me, I'm kind of still learning about this green sustainable energy yeah, and I definitely same. learned a lot. One of my biggest takeaways was that Electron does not, you know, they like lease out essentially these mm. charging stations. Like people don't actually yeah, buy these. Yeah. yeah, they just buy the rights to that like space. Which is genius. Yeah, so it's little overhead on, you know, the part of, you know, what the business or the property mm -hmm. that is installing these, you know, all the risk is on Electrata, but for Electrata, that's, that's how they're making their money is, you know, per kilowatt. Per kilowatt. And what I also thought was interesting too, is just how complex a company like Electrata is if they want to be successful because they're dealing mm. with so many di different elements from the city itself to the car companies to the electric companies. This isn't just a one-way path and there's so many hands involved in order for them to even mm -hmm. implement this type of infrastructure. Well, and they really have to dive into the lifestyle mm -hmm. of the people who have these electric cars. And like you said, Patrick, we we are still learning about this because you and I do not drive electric cars. So I don't <laughs> think about having to charge my vehicle yeah, to get to, to A go. to B. So it's still very new to us, but there's a ton of electric vehicles on the road and they're not going away. They're not going away. They're only increasing and, you know, policy is going to have to change in order to 
you know, shift with the change in the market. Um, but also, you know, our habits as consumers are going to change. You know, people people's jobs are going to be lost, you know, whether it's gas stations or in the oil and gas industry. So it's going to be interesting to see that shift. And, you know, Irina even said it should be a gradual shift. It shouldn't just be, you know, boom, like overnight, you know, see ya, you lost your job. And And, training. How are mm -hmm. you going to get people in those jobs to be prepared? Exactly. And exactly. So, I'm really excited to see where Electronic goes, and hopefully they could help Cincinnati become a leader in the electric vehicle space. Yeah, and if you drive, anyone who's listening to this, if you drive an electric vehicle, reach out to us, because we would love to hear your feedback on what it's like to drive an electric vehicle in the city of Cincinnati, slash the tri-state, northern Kentucky, Indiana as well. Because we're a little in the dark on that. <laughs> right. You can reach out to us by email, host at whenpigsfly.fm, or on Twitter, whenpigsflypod, or on Instagram or Facebook, just whenpigsfly. Yeah, or reach out to us individually. And with that said, it's time I think to it's prose. time. Prost. Cheers. Cheers. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Ali Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.